Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for dc Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arthi Shaw of The Homes Report. I am here with Beth Balsam, who is the new CEO of North America for Hill & Knowlton. She's joining us on, today is her first day um, at, at, at the new job, although when this airs, it won't be your first day anymore. Um, welcome, Beth, and thank you for making time for us on your on your first day. Well, thank you so much, Arthi. It's really great to be doing this on my first day, and I'll just correct you, it's U.S., not North America. I haven't conquered the, the continent. <laughs> oh, you know what? That, sorry. Yeah, that is, um, well, because Mike Coates is, is America's, correct? Correct. Yes, yes correct. Yes. So, you, so you're, you're U.S. Sorry about that. U.S. That's quite all right. Um, so, well, you know, you were joining um, H&K at sort of at a point of inflection, as we just pointed out, there's a new America's CEO, Mike Coates, who, who took over last, last summer. Um, there's been some notable departures. Um, so what, what would, if you, I know it's your it's early days for you, but I was wondering if you could sort of distill kind of, um, kind of where you think H&K sort of sits in the market in the U.S. now and then um, what your vision is in terms of where you want to take the agency in the U.S. at least. Yeah, no, I, I'm happy to answer that question. Um, you know, I, I first met Mike a few months ago and was immediately impressed, um, you know, with the way he presents himself and presents the agency and talks about his vision. And I think he's a really smart, really strategic guy. Uh, and I, he was very transparent and open in terms of uh, changes he's made over the last year and where he'd like to see the agency go. And he was very specific in terms of recruiting for the role I'm in now, in terms of the kind of talent he wanted to bring in and the background he wanted to bring in. And so having access to kind of all of that full spectrum of information, um, I really felt that the opportunity was an exciting one for me, and it was a role where I could make a difference. And so, you know, as I, I look ahead, um, you know, there's a lot of things that um, have been created here over the years and also in the last year, which I think are just great, and I have no intention of making any changes to those. But where I can come in and bring an outsider's perspective and help them think about things a little differently and help grow certain sectors, uh, that's where I think I could probably have the most impact. So your background is mostly in consumer marketing, um, from, from what I can tell. And you yes. know, H&K is, at least since, the, since following the public strategies merger, has been you know, much more consumed in, in some public affairs work. Um, and, and, and it has not, not had the best traction in some of these other practice areas, in particular in consumer marketing. How, are you, how do you think that your background will help H&K sort of make some more inroads in that area? You know, I, I think at the end of the day, when you look at uh, the agency world, it's all about people and expertise. And what I've seen uh, over the last year from H&K is uh, bringing in some really great people, including Molly O'Neill, who's now running the consumer practice here, uh, as well as others she's brought in. Um, and, and quite frankly, this is why I was selected for this role is because I have that experience. My background in PR has been mostly uh, in consumer with some crisis and some corporate thrown in for good measure, and I'm a secret polit political junkie. Um, but uh, that's clearly an area where this agency can and should grow. You know, any big multinational agency should be able to do a lot of things really well. And, and that's where I'd like to see Helen Alton go. Any, any specifics that you can say at this point on kind of what you want to do um, in, 
in the U.S. or, or is it too early days? You know, I, I think it's really too early to say. I'm spending the next month pretty much traveling from office to office, and uh, I've met uh, several of the leaders already. I, I'm hoping to meet everybody over the next, the course of the next three, four weeks. Um, and I'm really going to look and listen because, like I said, the things that are working well, I think, are really important to preserve. And it's all about finding where there are opportunities to improve and grow, and that's what I'll be listening for. I'm also a huge believer in, in looking at the talent pool and making sure that everybody is, uh, as a, a former client of mine once said, putting everybody in the right seat on the bus. You know, people's passion areas typically dovetail really nicely with what they're good at. Um, and I think in PR, we were all raised to be jack of all trades. And I think, you know, in 2015, we have more of an opportunity to specialize if that's really more um, attuned to what we do well. So I, I'd like to take a look at that and then make sure that all the resources are in place so that everybody can get the job done and do it well. That's uh, that's interesting because you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I think PR for a long time, everyone has, you know, this is your this is your account director who's also going to be your head of content who's also going to you know oversell the creative and and we yeah. we're starting to finally break away from that and and I think H and K has has done has done something remarkable in that in that regard with the acquisition of SJR um, yeah. the content specialists who who at least you know from what I've seen in the market have have a really great reputation and around around sort of content generation yeah and if, if you think about that you know how beautifully that lives with traditional PR, I'd like to see more integration there between the two agencies. So that's something else I'm thinking about. And uh, I'm sure I'll be spending a lot of time with uh, my new friends to be at SJR. They might not know they're my friends to be, but I'm announcing it now. <laughs> well, here we live here. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll also now let you know it afterwards and let him know that I'm his new best friend. Um, so actually, so speaking of um, just sort of, you know, things that you're doing with the agency. One of the things that, that you did recently in at the Global PR Summit, which we held, which was held in Miami at the end of October, was this was sort of unprecedented, I think. You appeared on stage as part of H&K's session, um, and, uh, but you weren't part yet part of H&K yet. So, um, but, but, you, but you led their session, which featured um, Kelly Parisi, who had communications for Lean In or um, the Lean In Foundation um, yeah. or leanin.org. Um, and she had some really interesting things in her talk, which I actually wanted to chat with you on as well. Um, one of the points that, that she made, and, and you know this because, um, and I should tell our, our listeners, anyone who, who didn't know, so, so Kelly, Kelly spoke, um, she was one of our, our headliners at, at uh, Miami, and then after her talk, Beth did a Q&A with her on stage. And, and one of the points that Kelly made was that it will take, um, at the rate that we're going right now, it'll take 100 years in this country, in the U.S., um, to achieve parity, gender parity in, in the C-suite. And I, you know, that was sort of looking kind of at a, a macro look at business, but in particular, in, I'm going to apply this to PR, um, I looked earlier this year at the number of agency heads from the top 250 firms around the world, and about... 30% of them are women. And you, you compare that to the fact that women make up about 70% of the overall workforce at all levels in our industry. But when you get to the very top, women only make up about 30%. So I'm just curious to hear, you know, you, you know you're now, um, you know, one of that 30%, you're in a, you're in a CEO role. Um, what can we do to get more women, not only, at, you know, at, at regional CEOs, but also at that global CEO level? 
I, you know, I have to say, I guess it was unusual that I wasn't an official employee when I did that, but I was so honored to do it because this is a topic for which I have so much passion. Um, you know, I, I entered the workforce uh, in the 1980s, and it was the era of uh, the Melanie Griffith Working Girl movie, which I really highly recommend if you haven't seen it. Um, and I felt, oh, I'm so lucky it's the 1980s and women are in the workforce, and I'm going to get to be one of them, and I'm going to get to wear my, you know, suit and power heels and all that and conquer the world. And especially as you enter PR, which to, to your point is so predominantly female, you, you quickly realize that, yes, the, you know, the soldiers in the field are, are very much female, but the, the generals at top are, are male. And I've spent a lot of my career uh, staring at executive conferences or executive meetings that held in conference rooms in my office where you don't see a woman. You see a bunch of men sitting around the table. And, you know, with all due respect to, to those men who I'm sure uh, are working really hard and deserve the roles they've had, it, it's really, it, it, it leaves the women in the workforce feeling very... Um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, kind of hopeless about a big future in the industry. And my God, if PR can't get it right, where there is such a great pipeline of, of women in, in the workforce, you know, how is banking going to get there? How is law? How is technology? Are there other fields that are more predominantly male? And so, you know, that's kind of how I came into the workforce in the 80s. And you, you fast forward now, I'm, I'm a mother of two daughters. My daughters are 13 and 10. And that 100-year reach gender parity that that point just it, it's really it's a knife in the chest because you hope oh gosh by the time my daughters enter the workforce for sure at that point it's going to be an equal playing field and it just it just isn't yet and nor nor does it seem like it will be unless unless we all hold hands and say no we're, we're going to make sure this changes and we're not going to accept the hundred year timeline you know, in the same way society was able to move things forward at a very fast pace when it comes to marriage equity or other social issues, I feel like this is one we all need to embrace and make sure um, that 100 years is, is not something, a number we're all looking at. And in fact, if you looked at the New York Times Week in Review section yesterday, there was an interesting cover article, um, and it was about men's lib and the fact that women are now leaning in and going into men's professions and men need to do the same and look at women's professions. So I, I feel like we're going to get there. I feel like things that used to take a century now take a decade or less. And I feel this is one topic where we need to put all of our efforts to make sure that's the case. So I did in some ways that sort of a follow on to the, to the piece on, on um, gender and leadership. NPR um, this summer, and this actually in H&K was sort of the, the centerpiece of the follow-up story, and that was on parental leave, and that was because um, Mike Coates, um, the the American CEO who we, we referenced earlier, um, when he joined, one of the one of the things that, that he did was, um, and I think he actually talked about this in Miami when when he introduced um, Kelly on stage, was you know before Mike was CEO of Americas, he was CEO of Canada. And when he took on the larger remit of the Americas, he was surprised about, in, US, in the U.S. in particular, that we have a society that's so unsupportive of working parents, especially um, on the sort of governmental policy level. So one of the things that he did was he wanted to, you know, short of, short of policy change at that level, he wanted to at least do what he could um, within, within H&K and announced um, 16 weeks, which is, this is, this is unprecedented in, in our industry at least, yes. um, 16 weeks paid leave for, for birth mothers and then 10 weeks for partners. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so and I remember, and this is actually sort of what triggered that, and how I came to know about this policy was in the press release announcing Beth, your arrival, there was yep. a quote at the bottom that says, I think your, your quote was, um, one of, there were many things obviously that drew you to H&K and one of them was this incredibly progressive and industry leading parental leave. And I remember when I saw that quote, I immediately called Rebecca Ballard and I said, Rebecca, what is this new parental leave that H&K is doing? And she immediately gave me all the details and I called other agencies and realized that you all stood out and you were the only agency to really offer this progressive of a plan. So that resulted in a, in a story that I hope, and I hope H&K taking the leadership here will help sort of nudge the industry in that direction. But Beth, tell me a little bit about sort of what, how that drew you as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's, it's so important. And I, I always laugh. I, I had two maternity leaves at two prior agencies. One was uh, about 11 weeks. The other was 10 weeks. And I always joke that right around the time when the baby starts doing something interesting, like cooing at you or giving you a smile, you have to go back to work. <laughs> and it's a very jarring turn. Um, I, I do think uh, for anybody who has had a child, you understand both from a physical as well as an emotional and psychological point of view, um, 16 weeks is, is really a much better number, a much more comfortable number to feel comfortable going back to work. Um, But equally as important to that, and all the research bears this out, and we talked about this a little bit at the panel, which is young millennials as they're, you know, pairing up and getting married and having children today, they go into it with much more egalitarian values um, than my generation and the generation prior. Their intention is very much to share, you know, the breadwinning, breadwinning role as also sharing the parenting role. And that's all great and that's all wonderful, but what ends up happening uh, when they get into the workforce is there's a greater kind of acceptance for women to take that maternity leave, to have to run out early when you get the call from sick from school that your child is sick. Um, there's way less acceptance for guys. So equally as important to the fact that women are getting this leave, which I applaud and I think is wonderful, is the fact that guys are getting it too. And I I hope that with this policy, we're allowing the men to be equal caregivers at home, which will allow the women to proceed in their career at the same uh, speed and velocity as their partners and husbands are. Yeah, no, I I thought that was a a really good point. I mean, that's actually a point that, you know, Sheryl Sandberg really drives home in in her book, right? And, um, but I mean, this, this idea to frame this issue around parental leave and not maternal, you know, maternity leave anymore. And, and I guess, you know, I'm based out here in San Francisco, so I have um, sort of a different perspective on this. And because here, Facebook, Google, I mean, a lot of these companies have now been doing equal time parental, uh, uh, paternity and maternity leave or, or for birth mothers and partners. So so there's this just much more of an egalitarian view out here that it's been for a while. And a lot of companies have sort of followed suit on that. But it's really, really good to see you know, companies that aren't based out here to sort of follow suit. Yeah, I I think it's important. And again, I do think it's one of those things that you're going to see change very rapidly because I think this generation is going to demand it. And, you know, the millennials, as we're seeing, they have a very different approach in terms of their professional lives, in terms of the things that they're going to prioritize for and are important to them. Um, And we want that talent. You know, we very much want that talent. So we need to make sure uh, that we're doing everything we can to establish uh, a workforce and a workplace that respects the individual and respects their responsibilities, not only in the office, but also outside of the office. 
Yeah, one one more thing that I have to point out that I loved about about the policy when I when I was speaking to various people within H and K about it um, is uh, is is not having to deplete your vacation time and your sick time as part of your parental leave, um, which which is which is really groundbreaking in the sense that when I spoke to a lot of other agencies, you know, they they was they was like, oh, well, and they, our paternity or maternity leave is like two or three weeks paid, and then after that you do your PTO, and yes, and um, this like you basically cobble together this like patchwork of paid and unpaid <laughs> leave, right? Yeah, like, really confusing. And when I talked to a lot of um, both on, I mean, men and women, honestly, when I spoke to them, um, they both they all. The frustration I heard across the board was the confusion around, you know, stitching together this patchwork. And especially on the on when I spoke to some men that had taken paternity leave about it, because they were like, "Oh, I guess I'm just doing PTO because I don't really have, I don't have the disability option. I don't have, um, you know, there's no sort of a lot of the agencies still didn't offer paid paternity leave, so they were just all relying on PTO. So it was, um, it's, there was a lot of like confusion when I spoke to people, who, especially ones who had done their maternity or their parental leaves that like you mentioned, um, in you know five to 10 plus years ago. Um, and I actually, I mean, there's very few men that, that when I spoke to that had actually done paternity leave in that time, most of the men that I spoke to had done theirs more, more recently. Um, but we're still sort of struggling to figure out sort of what their company policies were. Yeah, it, it is very complicated. And I've seen, you know, like I said, my children are 13 and 10. It's been a while, but I do recall that strange cobbling together of, okay, this is how much the agency provides. Here's what the state might provide, depending on where you work. Here's how much vacation you have. Here's how much sick time. Uh, and you do cobble it together. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's really important. And I do think it's something, I, I think we're going to see rapid change on this front. I, I, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. You know, when I, the, the, one of the silver linings that came from, from the story that I did when I spoke to the agencies that, you know, that did have much more traditional policies of, you know, there was no partner leave or, or the, the paid leave was like two or three weeks, they almost all came back to me and said, you know what, but we are revisiting this now, you know, and, and I thought that was really promising. And in, in, in light of H&K's um, decision, and then also just sort of like you said, I mean, just the, the millennials in general are just sort of expecting things to be different. Um, for them when they go on their leave. And I think you're right. I mean, you know, 16 weeks just is a much more comfortable number, I think, for people. And I, and I think we, we, as you mentioned, you talked about this on stage. I think Google actually did their research, right? And they were, when when they had, I think they initially had three months and their attrition rate yeah. for, for new mothers was, was actually quite high. And once they extended that to 16 weeks, their attrition rate dropped considerably. And, and you know, thinking, applying that to PR, where talent continues to be the greatest challenge. When we talk to PR agencies around the world, attracting and retaining talent continues to be their biggest challenge. And so you think that this is something that the PR world would look at and say, okay, look, the here's like Google's already done the, they've already done the number crunching on this. This is how we retain um, new mothers or even to some degree new parents. Yeah, I think sometimes it takes a while to catch up. I mean, first I just have to give Mike the world of credit and I think he you know, saw what worked so well in Canada and there it is government mandated, but he got, by God, he made it happen here. And I give him a tremendous amount of credit for it. Um, but then I think of other things like, you know, what insurance companies, what they choose to cover, what they don't cover. And you think to yourself, Oh God, if they just chose to cover X, Y, Z, whatever it is, it, it could prevent a major illness. It could find a cancer early. Like why aren't they covering those things that are ultimately in their best interest? Uh, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So I, I think it, it takes a while to catch up with these things to realize, you know, it's not only the humanistic way to be to give, um, you know, new parents this time they need, 
but it also happens to be good for us. Mm-hmm. So uh, sort of kind of moving into a different direction, but still yeah. sort of on the topic of women, one of the things that, that you and I have actually talked about that that you noticed at the Global Sabre Awards in Miami um, as well was, uh, yes. Yes, was how many of the campaigns that were, um, you know, in Miami, we, we, we celebrate sort of the, the, the top sort of 40, you know, best campaigns around the world and how many of them sort of had a message of sort of female empowerment. I mean, of course, you know, the one that we, we all know, um, like a girl, um, there was there was Stop the Wedding, there was another PNG, um, Touch the Pickle, and then I think you and I have also talked about it, the latest sort of Mattel ad for Barbie, which also sort of has an empowering undercurrent. So uh, given your background in, in consumer marketing, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on on what, you know, what you think about sort of female empowerment as a, as a marketing message. You know, it's interesting. If I think to where it started in a very big way. I think Dove probably uh, put the oar in the water first with their Dove Real Beauty campaign. Um, but I was, I was so taken uh, at the Sabres just to see not how many, not only how many were, had to do with female empowerment, but also had to do with women's issues like domestic violence and helping women who are in tough and bad situations. Um, you know, I, I, I think we all kind of appreciate it when we get to work on campaigns that have a strong social message. Um, and because we're all human beings, we can't help but be even more touched when it affects you personally. So again, you know, I'm a woman, I have two daughters. So seeing all that really, you know, kind of makes my heart swell with pride. Um, I think the trick is going to be, uh, making sure that it, you know, as we go down this path that it stays relevant and doesn't head into the trite area. Cause I think that it, that's a very easy kind of trap to fall into. Um, but you know, I, I think at this point in time, women do des- deserve to be celebrated. They do deserve to be recognized. And for the young women who are out there, they do need to understand, um, that maybe it's not quite the equal playing field they hope to yet, but you have the talent, you have the reserves, you have what you need to succeed. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, it, it could get trite or it to it, some extent, you know, watered down a bit or the, a lot of sort of copycat messages that don't, yeah. the, the real sentimentism behind it. There's like, oh, this is trendy right now. I mean, is there like, what would be, if any, sort of a downside to, to sort of marketing, sort of really co-opting female empowerment and sort of this sort of feminist message? Well, I, I think it needs to be authentic, right? So, um, you know, and I'll go back to Dove Real Beauty, they put real women in their ads. Now, they've done probably a 100 iterations since that very first one. I think that was unveiled on Oprah, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, But they have stayed true uh, for the most part in terms of showing women as they really are and not, um, you know, supermodels posing in their underwear. Um, I will say there have been probably a 100 executions of that campaign since then. And some have been outstanding and some have been less so, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I yep. think for those of us in marketing, whenever any one of those comes out, you're like, oh, did you like this one? Did you like it as much as the last one? You know, does it feel like they're treading on the same territory? Did they hit on a new insight? Um, so I think, uh, you know, Dove gets punched around a little bit for that within the marketing industry when they have a miss. But let me tell you, when they have a hit, there's nothing like it. Um, and, and I think for all of us, we have to just say, is this authentic to who we are as a brand? Are we hitting on a real insight or are we staging drama? Really making sure that if we are sending out a a message built around women's empowerment or recognizing a women's issue, A, that we have the right to tell that story the way we're telling it, 
uh, and that it hits on a true insight that, you know, women and men and young girls and young boys can look at that and say, oh, wow, you know, the always like a girl, it hits you like a ton of bricks, like, oh, my God, how many times have I said, oh, you do that like a girl and how insulting that is and what happens to a young woman's self-esteem uh, when she realizes what that is and, and what is what are the words like a girl really mean and what should they mean? And, and, you know, it's so simple, but the best insights always when they hit you, you're like, oh, of course, that is so simple, but it's so true. Yeah, no, um, that's, uh, one of the points you made though about, you know, bringing sort of boys and, and men into the conversation. And I think that is a big part of it. And going back to our earlier conversation about sort of lean in, I mean, that's one of the things that I think Sheryl Sandberg really emphasizes and her book as well, right, is that, I mean, this, this has to be, this, we, we all, this is something that we all should care about. Is there anything that you think marketers, I mean, do you think that's sort of going to be the next, um, you know, phase of this is that, you know, marketers will sort of make this not just like about women, but just sort of expanding this so that men and, and boys are included. I know in the Like a Girl ad, they're actually, they, they actually did feature some boys um, and, you know, ask them, you know, what do you mean when you say Like a Girl? Um, but I mean, I wonder if there are just ways that, that this, this can go beyond just sort of, you know, you know, traditionally sort of girl products or female products, female oriented products and sort of make this into a broader, um, more, you know, marketing push. You know, I, I think it can and I think it should because, you know, obviously when you think about maxi pads, yes, the, the purchaser is most likely a woman, yeah. <laughs> except for the husbands who get sent out, right. sent out at night, um, an emergency run. So I, I do think you are talking obviously about women as both the buyer and the user. There's tons of different categories out there uh, where women are both either or both or either the shopper and or the user. Um, and I read a, a Best Buy case study recently that was so interesting about uh, this insight that somebody had in the early 2000s that Best Buy was a store that was really, you know, a guy techie store and they were very much focused on reaching out to guys. Uh, but this data came in that showed that women actually um, either were the primary purchaser or very much had a vote in terms of what technology was being brought into the home. And how that changed, how Best Buy approached their customers, how their store was mm -hmm. built out, how they sold through product. You know, I, I think everybody understands and recognizes the buying power that women have. And so I do think there's ways to kind of bring this whole thought of women's empowerment um, out to broader categories. And I do think that, you know, when you look at like a girl messaging, I do think that's an aha moment for guys too. Because if there are men out there with daughters, you know, what do they want for their daughters? So it's not just a woman's issue. It becomes a, a people's issue in the same way that marriage equity, um, you know, was fought by not just people who benefited from marriage equity, but for people who saw that as an, just a basic element of fairness in our society. And so I, I do think um, it's there's no reason not to take a progressive approach. And I do think um, brands that do that will be rewarded. Yeah, no, I think one of the other areas I've heard that I've read a little bit about is um, sort of the, the bumbling dad or husband. Oh, my pet peeve. Oh, right. oh, my God. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, one of the things I've read about is that, A, I mean, they, men are only sort of, sort of um, depicted as incompetent sort of in this sort of domestic environment, right? But it also makes women feel like they, that it's their, that, that the domestic sphere is entirely their responsibility. And if they hand it off to, you know, their, their, their partner, then they are somehow like not doing their, their, their duty or their responsibility as mothers or as wives or, you know, and, um, 
and I think that's really damaging, especially as we said earlier in this in this conversation that I mean, a lot of this domestic work has to be shared if women are going to be able to, you know, go out and, and have careers and and keep their and, and excel and get to the C-suite. Right. I mean, there, there has to be more of a shared um, sort of situation at home. And, and I think that those, whenever those ads depict the, the fathers as bumbling idiots, I, it always sort of reinforces the stereotype that no, you know, you need to go do your job outside of the home, but then you need to come home and you need to be fully responsible for everything that happens here as well. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, it's not to say that in any couple, each are going to be exactly interested and exactly good at the same things, but it's a matter of finding that balance. So for example, uh, in the 17 years I've been married to my husband, I could probably count on one hand the loads of laundry he's done, but more than anything, it's probably because I'm very particular about how I like to do laundry. I'm, I'm very well educated on how to get the whites white and, you know, get all the stains out. But, you know, there are there are tasks that he takes on that I have never touched over those 17 years as well. You know, he is very much uh, the declutterer, gets rooms, you know, ready for company, takes all the old newspapers and puts them in the recycling bin. So, you know, we each play a role. It's not always the same role, but our children know they can go to either of us, that we're both responsible for the general care and feeding of our children. We're both responsible for our home. Um, and yeah, to, to present men as a bumbling fool and, and dads as bumbling fools is a front, not just to men, but to the women who love them. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like we have a reverse situation for laundry because, um, my husband is like, the, <laughs> he's so good at the laundry and I actually always like forget to, that it needs to get done. Like I was just like, Oh, we're all of our pants. And my husband's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, and, 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 and to your point about that, I mean, research is also so endless in terms of female empowerment that women that see their, their, um, their father, or sorry, women, girls who see their fathers in the house, do house and work actually tend to have more confidence and tend to have tend to be more ambitious than than girls who didn't see their fathers um, at home doing housework. Yeah, wasn't that such an interesting study? Mm-hmm. Well, good. Well, Beth, I am so glad that we had this conversation today. Thank you so much uh, for having me on today. Thank you, Beth. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers for DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 